Hello, my name is Christian Wagner, and I'm the Militant Thomist. So, you might be surprised and say, Christian, you just had a Q&A. Why are you having another one? Well, intelligent questioner who keeps up on Militant Thomist lore, we are having a Q&A because I hit 600, as it says in the description. And if you remember, it was eight days ago that I had my 500 Q&A. And it, actually, I'm a day and a half late because in six and a half days, we had over 100 subscribers. It's pretty insane. So I'm so grateful for all of you for sharing my stuff, for becoming my patrons so I can do this, um, and joining my Discord to be able to build community for following me on social media to be able to uh, get all this out to you. Um, I'm just very humbled and very grateful for every one of you. And I thank you because this would not be possible without you. You, the viewer, and I appreciate you. So thank you. So let's, let's keep it up, honestly. At this rate, we'll hit 1,000 before Easter. And that would truly be an amazing accomplishment. So let's get right into it. So um, make sure you send comments, Q&A, any questions you're having, anything you're wondering about. I'll see if I can answer them. This can go as long or as short as you want. I can stay in here for hours upon hours. I got nothing to do the rest of the night. Or if you guys aren't too questioning, I can just leave after this intro. So let's see if you guys have any questions. I'm not seeing any in the chat right now. Elijah's here and the other Paul's here. Two dear friends. <clears throat> While I'm waiting, um, what have I been reading? Oh my gosh, there's like 10 questions popped up at once. Why are you Christian Wagner, the militant Thomist, and not Christosimus Wagner, the militant Palamite? <laughs> Why am I not a Palamite? Um, as I've said before, I have read some Palamas, and um, if you read him, I can't get out of the implication that the facade that is um, claiming a Palamite simplicity is just that. It's a facade. Um, I think the term absolute divine simplicity is just a complete non-starter. Um, you either have parts physical and metaphysical, or you don't have parts metaphysical and physical. There's no, I absolutely, I I do not have parts metaphysical and physical, but I have, I don't have absolutely parts metaphysical and physical. I think it's completely incoherent and um, definitely goes against the, uh, any teaching on divine simplicity. That is why I'm not the militant Palamite. So Elijah asks, have you been fly fishing? Um, when I was when I was younger, I really enjoyed fly fishing. Well, fishing in general. 
and I got a fly fishing rod and got good at it. So um, actually, because I am an outdoorsman, as you see the the two bucks on my wall back there, you can't see the see the racks. Let me see if I can get them up for you. Yes, there they are. So I am an outdoorsman, hunting, fishing, and the like I do because I'm a man. If you don't go hunting, um, then you should. And okay. Okay. So Elijah Halberg. So by your definition, would SCOTUS not believe in divine simplicity? Again, um, I've been asked this question a few times about SCOTUS simplicity, and I'll I'll say like I've said before, I don't know. Um, I haven't read uh, SCOTUS on divine simplicity, so I don't feel comfortable making any comment. All I've interacted with is secondary sources, and I don't think it's ever fair to judge a system on secondary sources with limited knowledge. So that is a... Uh, a question better asked to Byzantine Scotus or uh, John Fisher 2.0, not me. Okay, so <laughs> the other Paul says become Palinism. <laughs> okay, so Militant Jamie, for the thousand subs, I want to see MT eat a ghost pepper. Oh gosh. <laughs> If if you guys give me to a thousand subs before Easter, I'll do it. I am solemnly buying Copo, you can you can screen record this all you want and make a meme out of it. Um I will eat a ghost pepper if you give me to a thousand subs before Easter. I promise. So the other Paul says, it's a race between me and you to 1K. Um, so everybody, uh, please do me a favor. Unsubscribe to the from the other Paul. Let's get his numbers down. We got to win this race. Okay. Um, so Elijah. Oh, he, he hunts turkey. Yeah, I've, I've turkey hunted in Maryland before. That's where, uh, that's where I hunt because that's where my family is. And turkey hunting, definitely a very different thing than deer hunting or rabbit hunting, which are the two animals that have hunted. I've also hunted bears, but uh, in Maryland, it's weird. You only get like one permit. Um, well, you're put into a lottery for a permit, so you only get one every few years. Okay, so Elijah asks, what do you like better, the Summa Theologica, Theologiae or the Summa Contra Gentiles? So I think we have to understand that the Summa Theologiae and the Summa Contra Gentiles, are do, they have two completely different ends. I don't know if you guys have heard me talk about this. Um, with the Summa Theologiae, uh, or Theologica, or whatever you want to call it, um, the end of that is systematics. So it's describing what something is. That's the question that the Summa uh, is, is trying to answer is what uh, Catholic doctrine is. Where the Summa Contra Gentiles, uh, its end is affirming that it is. So when the Summa Contra Gentiles, you'll get some good arguments and answers to objections for almost every single controversial doctrine of the Catholic faith. Um, and then you'll get responses to uh, heretical systems. So um, the Summa Contra Gentiles, we would describe it as 
as a um, as a dogmatic work, strictly speaking, because it's uh, giving that something is not what something is. If that makes any sense to you, that distinction. So it just depends uh, on what I'm trying to do. If I'm trying to uh, look for the reasons behind uh, certain Catholic dogma, Summa Contra Gentiles is really good. If I'm trying to defend against objections, Summa Contra Gentiles is really good. But if I'm trying to um, have a greater and deeper understanding of a certain doctrine, then definitely the, the Summa is much better. Okay. Militant Jamie. The other Paul has Danker meme shorts. Uh, yeah, I don't really have, I don't really do shorts. I did like three of them before I became Catholic. They good views and everything. It's just, I'd much rather spend 30 minutes reading, um, an article or two out of the Summa than I would 30 minutes making a short. So that's just me. <clears throat> okay. Alexander. What disputes did the papacy and the English monarchs have before Henry VIII? The appointment of bishops was one, right? Yeah, there was definitely disputes between the English monarchs and um, and the papacy before the Reformation. Like I said, and like I say always, it's in order to understand the Reformation and what the Reformation is, we shouldn't understand it as a complete novum, something completely new and off the grid that's happening that's never been seen before. Rather, it's the uh, bringing into fruition certain corrupt principles in uh, in certain medieval theologians. I think that's a much more helpful way of thinking about it. It's really a development that is a corruption, rather than a um, rather than a completely new thing that popped out of nowhere. So, uh, with monarchs before, um, you obviously have the situation of um, what's his name? Why can't I remember his name? The English Archbishop that was, that was a martyr. Gosh darn it, I can't remember his name right now. It's escaping me. But um, yeah, that really annoys me. Yeah, I can't can't remember it. John Fisher, no, not John, not Cranmer. <laughs> Cran. Not Cranmer, not Cranmer. Um, see the the medieval, but whatever. Somebody will bring it up in the chat later. Okay, so Elijah, what type of fish do I have in my fish tank? Um, it's a it's an alpha fish. I don't like to call him a beta fish because his name is Aquinas. So you have right back, right back here. You have Aquinas, the alpha fish. Um, if he was a beta fish, I would call him. I don't know, Palamas. Joking. Okay, so the other Paul. With your take on there being no metaphysical parts in God, does this include the take that God's attributes like love, wrath, etc. are all undistinguished? The idea of heard and don't like it. Um, none of the scholastics uh, would say that the, um, the attributes of God are uh, synonymous. St. Thomas actually has a good article in the Summa on this, explaining this a lot better than I can in a brief, brief format. I did an article on this, uh, responding to James White's misunderstandings of it. But uh, fundamentally, when we're attributing certain attributes like love and wrath to God, um, we're 
we're proceeding from a certain expression of God's being uh, in relation to creation, but it's still that one simple being that is being expressed in relation to others. So if that makes any any sense to you, but they're not synonymous because they're not signifying the same uh, relation to creation in God, if, uh, if that makes any sense. What do you make of early Eucharistic rites that do not contain the verba of the words of institution? Um, it's completely possible. Um, I, I'm not too learned on this subject, but I know that uh, that certain rites do not have the words of institution as we would in a Western context have them be, which makes it interesting because then what is the the form of the sacrament? So I'll leave that a very, a very um, unsatisfying answer for you, Tato. So my favorite scholastic besides Thomas. Ooh, that's a difficult one. Um, Anselm. Anselm's pretty good. Um, Scotus? I, I like Scotus. I do like Scotus. What I've read of him, which has basically been the first volume of his Ordinatio, it's pretty good. I do like him. Um, and then I'm assuming by Scholastic, you're having a very restricted reference point. So I can't go into the manualists. But um, yeah, I'd say uh, Scotus is pretty good. Anselm is pretty good. Um, yeah, it's really difficult to, to think of them because I don't want to be a, a coper and... Um, and say I like a scholastic when I haven't read him in a primary source. Because a lot of it is in Latin, and I'm not a skilled enough Latinist to read scholastic Latin. So a lot of these guys I like. Like, I like Banyas. I like Cajetan. Uh, Cajetan does have a, a translated treatise, though. Um, I like these guys, but, I mean, I haven't I haven't read uh, much of their original um, writing. Their primary sources. Yes, St. Thomas Beckett, that is who I was talking about. St. Thomas Beckett, yeah. So his, because basically you have a system in the relationship between medieval church and state where you have the state courts uh, for laymen, and then you have the church courts, which are for ecclesiastical crimes, and then also exclusively for students of universities, uh, monastics, and then uh, clergy. So that can cause some issues uh, when you have um, the church giving a sentence to a certain crime that the state doesn't like and vice versa. So it's a very different world back then. And um, that can also cause some, I'm not even gonna go there. So am I a fellow monarchist? Of course. Read, um, if you want a good defense of uh, monarchy, actually, if you read Bellarmine's volume on the papacy, he has a really good one, a biblical, historical, philosophical, and theological um, defense of uh, the monarchy. It's a very good one. But basically, God, God said monarchy, God established monarchy, therefore, uh, monarchy also, um, there's the reflection of the Trinity um, when you have a monarchical government, um, 
also there's a reflection of the church when you have um, our Lord Jesus Christ um, over the church. Um, also, another argument he gives is that uh, it, when you have multiple rulers, that creates factions, which can make it harder for things to get done, which obviously uh, we see that from Western liberal democracies and uh, such like that. He has like a billion arguments. Are you going to bring back Pope Mike? Are you going to bring back Pope Michael? Uh, yeah, I think I will. I think I will. Um, I'm going to talk to him about a refutation of Sedificantism because he's very learned on the subject. And I think he definitely knows more um, about the intimate details of Sedificantism than most Catholic apologists could dream of. So I think he'd actually be a really good resource for uh, refuting Sedificantism, although we would disagree on who. Um, <laughs> is is the uh sitting on the chair in that the chair is vacant what is your opinion of annihilationism the doctrine that the unsaved will be destroyed in hell um i think from an exegetical point of view that it's untenable augustine's going to argue this way that you have you have juxtaposed eternal life and eternal damnation so the exegesis of that passage that says well eternal is really talking about an unspecified period of time which it can which it can i don't want to uh, dissuade you from that um but it's more likely that it is talking about a period of time without end um okay do my bucks have names? No, they don't. Um, they're dead. So, are there any cases in which uh, pres presbyteral ordinations would be valid? Yes, yes, there actually are. Um, I mean, this is a bit disagreed upon by canonists. Um, so, this isn't a definite yes. This is a kind of a theologically that would make sense that um really i don't know enough about this topic to really make a definitive statement on it but from those i've talked to about this topic um makes sense that that is that it's illicit view within within catholicism and i even believe that there are some historical cases uh, of extreme emergency where this has happened um, and i'm sure we can think of those cases like uh, you have priests all the way in the new world and there's no bishops to be found. And can the Holy See give a dispensation for that? And it's happened in the past, especially with minor orders. Is there a contemporary defense or reason to keep a monarchy today? I can't think of a contemporary one, but I mean, I think Bellarmine does a relatively good job. It's the kingdom of heaven, not the, not the democracy of heaven. Any thoughts on Benevacantism? Just because it's been on my mind since earlier today. Uh, <laughs> it's a difficult question. 
You guys are hitting me with the hard ones today. You guys are keeping me on my toes. I obviously think it's wrong. Um, I think that goes without saying that I think it's wrong. Um, I mean, weirder things have happened in church history. So, I mean, very extremely, just very distant and remote possibility. But it's so remote that I wouldn't even consider it unless anything definitive or a consensus of theologians or, or something like that. Because I just don't think the argument follows too well. You know, I think Michael Lofton had a good stream on it. Um, that debate, I can't remember the two guys' names, but the debate was pretty good. Uh, I just I just think that's grasping for straws. And uh, I, I did see a good comment from somebody that basically said like, okay, let's say we have Pope Pius Thirteenth took office, not Pope Francis. And Pope Pius Thirteenth brought back the Tridentine Mass and started kicking out the gays and started just reforming the heck out of the out of the church and brought back the papal tiara and all this stuff. Do you think that any sort of benevacantism would ever be thought of? Well, of course not. So I think um, when it comes to reactionary systems who are trying to have an underlying motive to seeking, um, then, um, then you should really assent to it with any degree of seriousness. But a good... I won't even go there, actually. I'm, I'm holding back from being too uh, too based today, since I was already so based last night in the chill stream. Best argument for geocentrism. Um, I think the best argument for geocentrism is, honestly, the... There's, there's multiple... Uh, arguments. It's it's really hard to categorize a best argument because I think it's kind of a cumulative uh, tide of arguments that really make the case, not necessarily one like gotcha argument. So the first one would be um, a theological principle when it comes to uh, the unique position in which the earth is in the universe. And then second would be the fact that this was there's a pretty good consensus when it comes at least to the to the earlier church um, on this because of the theological principle. So it's very important because of the theological principle. And then now when you go into uh, the questions of scientific inquiry, um, when it comes to certain ideas of relativity, um, really anything could be the center of the universe, if that makes sense to you. Uh, it's, it's like... Um, it's, this is a really difficult concept to understand. Uh, you know, I'm not even gonna, I'm not even gonna try to illustrate for this for you guys. But when it comes to the way in which motion works, um, technically, with this moving through the air, this this bracelet that my niece made me, moving through the air, I could just as equally posit that the entirety of creation is just moving front and back and it's not actually this, which is moving back and forth as weird as that may sound uh, because of the way in which relative motion works. So this leaves us to the question of, okay, um, anything can be after a technical manner um, with relative motion, the center of the universe. So what are we going to choose? So we could choose the, uh, the sun as being the center of our solar system because it's 
it's big and that creates a nice clean model when it comes to rotation. Okay, okay. But then we could choose the earth. Um, I think that highlights the theological principle better. But really, I don't think it's a question of um, heliocentrism versus geocentrism. I think it's uh, a lot more complicated than that because those positions aren't necessarily incompatible. I just think it comes down to uh, what are your foundational principles when it comes to naming the center of a certain thing. And I think it's most fitting to say the to name the earth as the center rather than anything else. What's my favorite church father? I really like uh, Dionysius. Um, Dionysius, he just blows my mind with the just depth, just the mystical depth of his writing. It's uh, reading Dionysius will just absolutely destroy your brain and um it makes it makes god seem so involved in creation you know it's it, he's distant from creation it, it's so weird because when you read dionysius he seems so utterly transcendent but also so utterly um intimate it's it's just this and that alone, it just blows my mind reading Dionysius. And um, I've, I still need to read through Thomas's commentary on the divine names from Dionysius. But I've read through the first book um, of it, and it was pretty good, pretty good stuff. But I mean, Dionysius is hard enough to read. Thomas's <laughs> commentary on Dionysius is, it, it just, uh, hurt my brain a little bit so i need to uh, meditate a little bit more on dionysius but he's just uh he's just an absolute tank and then obviously the the normie ones um really like saint cyril uh saint cyril is a wonderful theologian of uh, he he's necessary reading before you say anything about christology he's definitely one of those uh those locus classicus uh, uh, uh primary sources that i was talking about that you have to read before you start reading the the manuals of theology and the secondary sources and the systems of theology. You need to read St. Cyril to even understand um, Christology. Because then you start understanding the underlying logic of why everything is. Uh, when it comes to the uh, person and natures of Christ, you, you get that underlying uh, foundation. And then working from that, you start to bring out the theory uh, that comes from it. When are you interviewing Ed Fazer? Um, <laughs> I would actually love that. Um, I don't know some of these guys. I've, I've. It, it's, it's really weird because sometimes I'll just read journal articles, and uh, I really have some questions about the article, so I'll just email the uh, the author of the article. I'll just look whatever university they work at, and then their email is usually listed. So it's pretty easy to contact them. Um, so like stuff like that, I've been thinking about, it'd be kind of cool to bring on some of those guys. Uh, if you have really specific topics that you're interested in, you want to talk them to talk about basically the content of their article. Um, I think that'd be cool. But when it comes to Edward Fazer in, in particular, he's not just a, uh, a scholar. He's also like a bit of a popular figure, if you know what I'm saying. So he's a little bit more difficult to reach. So um, if anybody could hook me up, then uh, I'd love to have him on. 
Okay, so John Fisher, he asked, can baptisms in the name of Jesus be valid? Thomas says yes in the case of the primitive church. Um, I think that's a more of a question of exegesis. Um, so we have to we have to ask ourselves what in means in, in both cases, because I would say that in, in the case of uh, baptizing in the name of the father and the son of the whole in the Holy ghost is uh, used in a different sense than in with, in the name of Jesus, because in the name um, that is, that can be an idiomatic phrase to, to mean um, something more general than, saying in the name of Jesus. So I would say that the two senses are equivocal and that Trinitarian baptism existed from the beginning. Um, but that might be a more reformed way of thinking because that's the argument that the reformers are going to name. So I wouldn't exactly throw it off. I'd have to see how um, in the in the first two or three centuries, uh, how they would describe baptism. Because I think that in the name of Jesus is just... Um, a different type of appellation than um, in in the triune name is trying to get at. Okay, are you aware of Michael Heiser's work on the unseen realm and demons? If you so, what do you think of him and his thesis? I'm not really familiar. I don't. I don't feel uh, qualified to answer that question. Sorry. Could you explain a little more uh, what you said on the response to the Muslim metaphysician about the soul not being quite a person after death? I can. I can. Let me just pull it up real quick. Man, I need you, Jamie. Militant Jamie, you need to be here. Get my second screen. Notice I actually do this often in streams. You guys might not realize, but I'll like, if I... I'll keep talking and then pull it my gosh, it's so bright. This is terrible. I don't know how to lower the brightness of the screen. I look horrible with this lighting. Okay. Commentary on the sentences. That'll probably be book three. Uh, distinction. Uh, let's see if I can even find it. I don't think going off of memory is going to be too helpful. Let's see. Um, sorry for the brief intermission. You guys talk amongst yourselves. Let's see if I can actually find this. Gosh, if you guys could get a reference for me, that'd be great. Oh, there it is. See, absolute savage. Okay, so let me share my screen and I'll kind of go through. Uh, see if there's any helpful sections that will aid me in explaining this. Okay, there you go. Put myself in the bottom left corner. I'll take your take your thing down. Okay. So basically, um, as you'll see here, Actually, I'll send this link in the chat if you guys want to read the whole thing. I'm not going to read the whole thing for you guys. Sorry. So basically, um, there's two views of the relationship between the soul and the body. You have a certain view, which is um, I would describe as generally dualistic, which is basically like the soul possesses the body as a ghost. 
You know what I'm saying? So the soul is properly said to be the person. And then you're, you're a person with a body and not necessarily um, the soul and body combined as a person. So uh, in the Thomistic view, uh, if you're familiar with uh, matter and form, the form is the individualizing principle of, of matter. So it makes it this thing. So um, with the soul, the soul is the form of the body in that the soul makes this man, this man, or this person. So without, <coughs> without the soul, this person is not this person. It's just this person's soul. So it's, he's not properly the, the whole thing. So that's just a rough and dirty way of, of saying that. Yeah, so I think reply to objection one is really important. A separated soul, properly speaking, is not a substance of a certain nature, which would be the definition of a hypostasis or a person, but a part of a nature. So that would be like saying, uh, that'd be like calling, uh, let's say you get your hand chopped off. That's like calling your hand you. You're, I mean, that's like calling your hand your body. Your hand's not really your body. Your hand's a part of your body. So if your hand gets separated from the rest of your body, you can't properly call your hand your body. Let me see if there's any other. Yeah, I don't think there's anything else I didn't say in the other stream. Yep. Sorry about that. I spent all that time getting up that for you guys and then i didn't really even really use it okay so aborted cells for vaccines leads us to everlasting fire but no one talks about that today uh if you could explain that a little more i think that'd be that'd be helpful um I'm back. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I don't know what happened. I unplugged my other screen. And it just kicked me out right away. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, okay. Yeah. This question. So yeah, with um, aborted cells for vaccines, um, there's a certain question in moral theology when it comes to the proximity or the remoteness of um of a certain moral act. So with the person obviously doing the abortion and then directly doing research when it comes to using aborted cells, that is a very uh, proximate action towards this evil. And then you have very remote, like let's say you're eating a banana that was, uh, that was produced with slave labor or uh, certain cartel connections. You wouldn't necessarily be uh, guilty for their acts because that's a remote sort of way. And I think also the principle of um, 
the the uh, moral principle in Catholic moral theology that uh, that freedom rules where there is no law. This. That's probably better with the audio. So where there is no um, where there's no definitive and definite law. So, for example, there's no teaching from the magisterium or anything which is promulgating a law against receiving those certain vaccines, um, then freedom would rule in that case and wouldn't necessarily be bound to uh, to that. But obviously it is better to, to just not uh, participate that even remotely. It's not saying it's a morally good thing to participate in something remotely, but um, yeah. The virgin cumulative case for the resurrection versus the sigma cumulative case for geocentrism. Okay. Where can you get the on the evolution of Catholic dogma in PDF? Um, nowhere. Unfortunately, it looks like it's out of print, and you'd be scant to get some um, to get some secondary sources. I have it right here. Uh, <laughs> I would provide a nice audio version. I don't think the uh, the person holding the um, holding the uh, what's it called the copyright would would care too much because it seems like this is a very minor book when it comes to their printing company, and I don't even know how they would find this uh, as long as I change around some language. But I I'm not about uh, <laughs> helping you guys steal books. Sorry um, if. If anybody would be interested in uh, in helping me contact uh, contact them to be able to uh, get the copyright, uh, I would be totally interested in doing the editing for that and doing the publishing work for that on Militant Thomas Press. If uh, to put it back into print, I'd love to do that, uh, but it's hard when it's copyrighted. But I think. Uh, I think copywriting's dumb anyways. Okay, let me look. What saints do you have devotion to? Um, good question, good question. <sighs> definitely St. John Henry Newman. Um, definitely um, St. Thomas Aquinas, obviously. He, in my intellectual life, has been very helpful when asking for his intercession when I run into various and sundry difficulties. Um, I was just the other night thinking about real relations between God and creation, and I just could not stretch my little brain to understand um, what St. Thomas and the, uh, and the scholastic philosophers were saying about about real relations between God and creation. And then just did uh, the litany to St. Thomas, wonderful prayer. Um, and just kept reading and meditating and praying. And finally, you get to that moment. So I don't know if you guys have ever felt this in, in reading theology. You just get to that moment where you just have the that certain lumen gratia, the light of grace, which just descends on your mind and enlightens to where you now understand something which you've just been struggling to understand before. It's just a wonderful moment. What country would you move to if you could? If I could move to a different country, 
Um, Poland seems pretty based. Maybe I'll go with Copo and uh, <laughs> and move somewhere in the Balkans. I think that'd be a cool place to be, except, uh, you know, Russia. Who's your favorite reformer if you have one? Vermigli, definitely Vermigli. Um, when it comes to Luther, obviously, you know, I'm not a fan. When it comes to Zwingli, not a fan. Uh, Booser, Booser is another good pick, Booser, um, because he was a um, he was a Dominican. He was a strong Thomist. So a lot of the goods of St. Thomas come through his writing. Okay, what, what are your opinions on Origen and other earlier church fathers who plausibly or even definitely held heretical views, i.e. Origen, Eusebius, Tertullian? Um, that, again, is a very good question. Uh, I think we can have a... If, if Let me put it this way. If I can read Aristotle, and if I can read... Uh, certain Roman philosophers and eat like Marcus Aurelius um, who hated Christians and who despised them. If I can read Cicero, if I can read all of these other pagans and get fruit out of them for the use in my theological system, I sure as heck can use some of these guys, especially as historical resources. And they also make um, really like, for example, origin, everybody before origin was playing checkers theological checkers and then origin was the first one to introduce chess if you know what i'm i'm saying like i was just reading his uh commentary his first book of his commentary on john where he goes over the uh what it means for christ to, to be the word that's a wonderful section on understanding uh how catholic biblical interpretation differs from modern methods of biblical interpretation Favorite Pope? Um, that would either be Pope St. Gregory the Great or Pope St. Leo the Great. I really like Pope St. They're just both masters of Christology and of just uh, just writing in general. Prose writing, of homiletics. Of, they're just great. Okay, favorite language except English. Favorite language I've studied. I studied Spanish, which I'm not fluent any anymore. I used to be able to be conversational generally. Um, I didn't like it too much, honestly. It just didn't click with me. Um, Greek, I really do like Greek. Honestly, Greek might be one of my favorites, if not my favorite. Latin, but I mean, that's just because it sounds pretty. It's in the liturgy, and then there's a lot of untranslated stuff. I don't generally have any just like of the form of Latin uh, in itself. Um, and then Hebrew. Hebrew is my least favorite. If you're... <laughs> and no, that's not an anti-Semitic statement. I just don't like the language. I like how when I did get kicked out, Copo, Boomer Moment, Vincent, Boomer Tech, the other Paul, Boomer Moment. Oh, my. Oh, 
Elijah said the 26th um, is Pope Nicholas I, whom several condemn because he taught that baptism conferred in the name of Christ without expression of the three persons was valid from Bellarmine. Oh, there you go. So the church has treated this question. Yeah, and then Elijah also goes over it's the practice of the church to rebaptize those baptized in the name of Jesus. So favorite liturgical rite slash usage slash usage. Um ordinary. Ordinary is my favorite. I think the ordinary is the unique lexorendi of the of the Latin rite. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not meant I'm I'm not trying to make fun of Pope Francis. I just thought that was um thought that was a funny joke. Yes. I uh I'm a big fan of the ordinary right. That that has more to do um one with the fact that I'm a former Anglican, so it's a lot easier for me to pray well with the ordinary right. And then two, I think inherently with the beauty and majesty of the language, and then also with retaining a lot from being able to retain, but also reform. Um, I think it, it holds a perfect tension. Okay. How would you respond to critics who claim in the council of Trent is teaching a differing theology than in Vatican II? I honestly, I think that when it comes to people that say that, uh, especially set of a contest, we should just ask them, we should just ask them whether they have actually read Vatican II. Because a lot of times with people that just talk about like, oh, Vatican II this, oh, Vatican II that, the guys haven't even read the documents from Vatican II. Like ask them which document and which section of the document they're particularly talking about and such like that. And really those objections kind of just go away. Okay. So besides Apollinarianism, are there any other major heresies William Lake Craig espouses? Um, well, for one, a complete denial of uh, divine simplicity. Number two, a, um, he espouses a kind of social Trinitarianism. It all comes back to the same thing, is he doesn't know what hypostasis means. Uh, that is a huge uh, aspect of a lot of these Trinitarian and Christological heretics that have arisen in the evangelical world is they don't read the fathers. They don't know how the fathers are defining hypostasis. Um, so that leads them to think of hypostasis as a sort of uh, intellectual agent. Um, so if you're defining hypostasis as a like center of consciousness or an intellectual agent, then you're going to come up with tritheism and then you're going to come up with Apollinarianism. So it makes sense that he's falling into these two heresies, but um, I wish somebody would just explain the, the teaching of the church to him in an actually coherent way. That'd be helpful. Okay. What church father led you to believe the papacy or group of fathers? Um, <clears throat> when it comes to the traditional loci, loci, um, 
the classical loci, when it comes to the papacy, I think important texts to read is going to be the Acts of the Council. So that little volume from, uh, well, not little volume, but pretty sizable volume um, in the shaft set, that's just the seven ecumenical councils, especially reading uh, three onwards. Um, and you get what, and read just what they say about the prerogatives um, of the Roman pontiff. I think that's the most helpful way of going about it because one, you're going to get a, um, you're going to get a more consensus view where Easterners are actually more represented than Westerners. That's very helpful. Um, then also, uh, I, I don't necessarily like um, the tendency in, especially online theology, but um, in autodidacts uh, of all sorts of only reading secondary or tertiary sources, because really um, a lot of these guys you're watching on YouTube, they're tertiary sources. They don't read the primary sources. Uh, they might read secondary sources and they might actually read. So they're, they're just presenting to you their reading of secondary sources, which is a tertiary source. And then sometimes even some of these guys don't even read secondary sources, but they just watch other guys on YouTube so, or read blogs. So they've become like quaternary sources. So I, I don't like that, that trend. Um, I think it's much more helpful to pick out some primary source texts on certain questions you're interested from, ask people, uh, maybe even look at secondary sources to see what readings they suggest that are primary sources. And in reading these, um, you can come to a, come to an understanding of it rather than just reading a secondary source, which is honestly, all secondary sources are just mere hearsay. If you haven't read the primary source. Shia Alexi says Hebrew is just worse Arabic. <laughs> uh, yeah, at least Arabic doesn't sound like too ugly, you know? Like, I think Hebrew is just a very rough sounding language. So what church father would you suggest to read for a beginner? Um, that's a good question. Um Uh, I think it's better to, rather than just a single church father, to look at some individual texts and just go through the greats, you know, th there's two ways of going about it. You can go through the greats, which is just like, okay, Augustine's confessions, um, the theological orations, uh, the five theological orations, um, the tome of Pope St. Leo. Um, so just the, the greats, the very, uh, the very central texts when it comes to uh, later reception of the church fathers and um, or another one's Augustine's um, tractates on John or his homilies on first John. Those are really good texts to kind of get your feet wet because especially with their homilies, they are speaking to laymen. So even it, it's helpful for modern day laymen to read them. And then another way you can go about it, another mode that I suggest is to just go on New Advent where they have that listing of the of the church fathers and just kind of scroll whatever's of interest to you be like oh I'm interested in the sacraments oh yeah look Ambrose has a treatise on the sacraments that's kind of cool I want to read about that now so just read through that oh cool Eusebius's life of Constantine that's pretty cool I want to learn more about Constantine's life just read about that oh look 
Socrates Scholasticus, his uh, ecclesiastical history. I'm kind of interested in ecclesiastical history and then just read through that. I think that can be a very helpful way um, of going about it when it comes to introducing yourself to the fathers. But I mean, the, if you're going to ask the way I do it, um, I kind of just choose one father at a time, download all of their uh, works onto my reader, and then just go through reading them. And right now um, I'm reading through Eusebius. Um, I finished his ecclesiastical history, and then his, and then I'm almost done his life of Constantine. Okay. What am I learning in Greek classes right now? Um, <laughs> we're actually going through Athanasian. Athanase. We're going through Athanase right now. So it's what am I learning in Greek class right now? I'm learning how to read Greek. You know, none of these nerdy, uh, these absolute meme. Um, German higher critical language learning methods that are just garbage that I, I mean, I took like two years of them. Um, I mean, it really helped me learn grammar really well and uh, the various categories that are used, but at the end of it, I couldn't really read. So that was uh, a really hard struggle over the next like year to try to get up the reading the new Testament. And then now with um, when I'm, I'm taking classes at the angle, the Ancient Language Institute, it's really helping me expand the breadth of my Greek and to just, I have to do like about, I, I read through each text once a day. So that's about an hour, hour and a half of Greek reading a week, which is, and it's a lot of new, um, new stuff that I'm running into. So. Is Big Charles a blessed? Um, Copa, I think you mean Charlemagne. <laughs> or Charles the Great, I guess you could, you'd call him. Um, is he a blessed? I found confusing info on the issue. Well, I'm actually writing something about Charlemagne's um, ecclesiastical, not ecclesiastical, but it's kind of more of his pedagogical policy. policy right now but uh, i i did see that he is called a blessed but that's about all i didn't really jump down the rabbit hole but when it comes to uh canonizations in the earlier ages of the church and this is kind of more of a transition period to where it gets more form formalized it's basically like local cults and i don't mean cult in the negative sense but a local cult this sort of forms around a certain saint and um in that they can be uh, declared a saint or a blessed. Okay. <laughs> Copo, we're not, I'm not laughing at you because it's, it's amazing that you, uh, they have a really good fluency in, in English. Big Charles, Carl the Big. <laughs> we call him Charlemagne uh, it's, or Charles the Great. Uh, because uh, the, the magne part of the end of Charlemagne is just uh, great in, in Latin. But uh, <laughs> I'm not laughing at you, Copo. I'm laughing with you. Um, 
I heard St. Gregory of Nyssa taught universalism thoughts. I haven't read much uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa, so I can't really com comment, but um, we'll soon uh, because I'm reading through, starting to get into uh, get into the post-Nicene Fathers. So I've read through basically all of the anti-Nicene Fathers. Okay, any thoughts on Johann Adam Moeller's comparison of doctrines, Catholic slash Protestant, and symbolism? I haven't ran into it. I mean, if you if you send me the links, I'll read it, but um, I have not read about that. What do you think happens to unbaptized infants who pass? It's a very difficult question. Um August, St. Augustine's uh, view that basically a highway to hell that hasn't been looked too favorably upon in the history of theology. Um, so I think I'm a believer in limbo. I don't think they have the beatific vision because they don't have the graces of baptism. But I also don't think they suffer any punishment because original sin, as St. Thomas teaches, um, cannot be the grounds of, of punishment, only actual sin. So it's not that they're, they're not punished, but they also don't get the beatific vision. So I think that necessitates some sort of limbo. Char the, oh, the duality of man, Elijah. Charlemagne denied Nicaea too, so he is a heretic. Toto. Charlemagne denied Nicaea too, so he's based. <laughs> um, it's it's pretty unclear um, what exactly was happening there uh, because I mean Charlemagne wasn't a, a Greek scholar it wasn't even too he only learned Latin really later in his life too in any sort of classical way so it's it's a bit sticky the situation that went on and then the reformers like to hype him up as this uber iconoclast but not a lot of the primary sources are translated. Tato. Nicaea too condones idolatry, at least in a common Roman slash Eastern interpretation of it. No. Shia. Actually, I'll go back. I'll go back to you, Tonto. I promise. Um, so, one define for me idolatry. Two define for me what Nicaea two um, is condoning, and then draw from that uh, the conclusion given because those are pretty high charges. Okay. To bring up the older topic of Sidovacontists and other new reactionary schisms, have you read anything about the old Catholics and groups that reject Vatican I? Um, actually, uh, interestingly enough, my Anglican priest used to be uh, an old Catholic priest when he was um, in a former life. He was an old Catholic priest. So I do know uh, an okay bit about old Catholics. 
So, um, yeah, basically they, they reject, um, it's pretty simple. They reject, um, Vatican one and then obviously Vatican two and they're usually universalists. So it's, and that was even like back in like the 1920s that way they were saying that about universalism, um, yeah, it's a very interesting group. I'd like to get a. Uh, I've been trying to get an old Catholic historian on for uh, for an interview. I think that'd be a really interesting one because not many people even think about old Catholics. Okay. Do you think Protestants who attack the Catholic Church beliefs like Dr. James White or John MacArthur are saved? I will make no judgments on men's souls, but they should know better. They should really know better. So someone with who has been presented to them convincingly, the, uh, the tenets of the Roman Catholic faith, knowing that the Roman pontiff without impediments is the successor of Peter and that communion with him is necessary will be damned as Vatican to itself teaches. So it's just a question of whether they go in those groups. I think James White is a lot more, a lot more likely than John MacArthur. I don't see in John MacArthur, any understanding of, of what Rome teaches. I really don't. You mentioned Pius XIII earlier. Was it licit to call a new conclave during his coma? He was the true Pope once he woke. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm assuming you uh, you watch the show. Um, I don't recommend it to any of you, especially unmarried gents, because there is a bit of uh, illicit content um, in it. But um, assuming you're talking about, uh, what is that, the new Pope? The young pope and the new pope. Would would it have been licit to call a conclave while a pope is in a coma? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, there's specific canonical questions that attach with that, and I'm no canon lawyer. But I think, I mean, you would appoint obviously a cardinal to run the ministry that uh, the pope used to do uh, before he got into a coma. But until he dies, like you can't just like be like, okay, new conclave. That's just not how it works, man. I don't think that was... I, I think once he woke up, he still was the, the true Pope. Yeah. Okay. So I knew about rejecting the Vatican Councils and what they entail, like papal infallibility, but I didn't know about the universalism. Can you touch on how they got that belief? Yeah, it was a... Um, so in like late... I want to say late 19th early 20th century Catholicism, uh, there were certain groups of theologians, especially in the areas where old Catholicism first uh, arose and schism from, where in some of those universities, uh, universalism began to be a more popular thesis being put forward, and they just grabbed the hold of it. It comes down to um, certain patristic resourcement when there was the realization that there were some fathers that um, 
that followed after the lead of origin. So with that realization, some people were like, oh, maybe this is illicit um, opinion. So. Okay, is helping MDA belief available in the Catholic Church? Oh, gosh. You guys are bringing me with the hard ones. Uh, I want to make a distinction here. Because you're asking, I'm assuming, about the laicity of that belief. Like if somebody said, I believe hell is empty, would they be condemned as a heretic? No. Because the magisterium hasn't definitively um, spoken on this issue. So this is why you have pretty famous theologians that even popes are reading who hold to that thesis that we can hope for the salvation of all men. But when you look at the positive teaching of the church, what has been the consensus of her doctors and theologians throughout the ages? Obviously, hell has people in it. Like, that's a pretty obvious thesis to me, although um, it hasn't been definitively spoken on. So church discipline won't be taken against them, but it's pretty clear that they're wrong. Are we supposed to stick with questions on theology and philosophy or is anything fair game? Anything's fair game. Go at it. Okay, so Tato. Idolatry is the worship of anything that is not God. Okay, I would agree with that. Practice of veneration of images by the Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, kissing, bowing, etc. Is worship due to God alone or at least it can and does fool the... I'm assuming he's going to keep writing. Faithful into actually worshiping them with the worship due to God alone. Okay. Um, that's, that's fair. That's, a, I think a fair critique to certain expressions of the theology of Nicaea too, is that it can lead to misunderstandings in the faithful. We especially see this in the late, late medieval uh, Roman church is there is some clear misunderstandings going amongst the parish priests and laities laity. Um, and that's a spark for the reformation because you have people like, like if you read some of the collects in late medieval Catholicism, it's it's a bit weird. <laughs> They're going far beyond uh, ora pro nobis. Um, and then also, I mean, I'm sure you see it even today in among certain laity that they're they're getting a little bit sus, if, if you know what I'm saying. Um, so that's a fair critique. But uh, kissing, bowing, lighting candles, all that stuff isn't per se. Um, the worship due to God alone. I think the fundamental distinction between the uh, veneration or the honor we can show to people, for example, um, when when my bishop comes around, you genuflect on your right knee. Oh, your left knee, sorry. You genuflect on your left knee. Now, is this, are, are you adoring him with the worship due to God alone? No, it's a form of religious uh honor, but um, it's not necessarily an idolatrous form of religious worship. So I think the fundamental distinction between the two has to do with sacrifice. So you're offering sacrifice to, to something. So for example, there were heretical groups in the early church that were offering the mass to the Blessed Virgin Mary, which is obviously a no-no. On a lighter question, I suppose, do you think there's a problem with popular literature like Dante's Divine Comedy influencing the common view of heaven and hell? 
I don't think so. Because when you read sacred scripture, uh, Calvin will describe God as babbling to us, like we're little babies. He he stoops down and speaks to us with our concepts and language. So um, when we read scripture, there's a lot of analogous language going on there. For example, God has an arm, the, the right hand, the right arm of the Lord. Uh, God is a rock, so things like this, which are obviously analogous, um, but they're, they're referenced to a certain perfection, which is found um, in God. So I think when it comes to painting uh, a bit of an analogous tale, such as Dante has, I think that might be helpful with uh, the laity understanding uh, certain concepts about heaven and hell. But it must be clear that these are analogous concepts and not a one-to-one univocal concept. Have you read uh, John Henry Newman's novels? No, I know of their existence and I really want to, but I'm so busy with like nonfiction stuff. I, I mean, I need to, I need maybe like the, because the week before I get received at the vigil, I'm basically have the whole week off for, um, for preparing myself to be received into the church. So I think maybe uh, I'll pick up some of these novels and and read them i think they're they'll be very helpful because i know about what they're about they're about um martyrs in the early church so so how do catholics know their traditions the right one to follow and not the eastern traditions uh first um the the roman church is in communion with those who authentically follow the eastern traditions i don't think the two are mutually exclusive and then second uh we have to ask ourselves um who's i think the question you're getting at is um an epistemological one so how do we know the interpretation of tradition because interpretation of tradition is much more difficult than the interpretation of scripture i mean scripture you have it right here tradition you're looking through various fathers you're looking through various councils local uh regional ecumenical you're looking through the liturgies of the church you're looking through a lot of different things in order to discern what is the tradition of the church on this matter and it can be very difficult there's very bloody fights in history over over this question but um when it comes to the authentic interpreter of tradition it's the magisterium of the roman church So how would you interpret the warning of the angel in Revelation demanding John not to bow to him since he is a fellow servant, even though John was not offering a sacrifice to the angel? Yeah, I think um, this is not to say uh, what I've said now is not to say that veneration can, in certain instances and circumstances, be illicit. For example, if you have the exposition of the Blessed Sacrament, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ right before your eyes. And then you turn around and venerate an icon of um, St. Thomas. St. Thomas would probably smack you in the face for venerating his icon, even though we affirm veneration of icons, and tell you to adore that dang blessed sacrament right there. 
So I, I don't think it's mutually exclusive. And in certain circumstances, it definitely would be inappropriate, although not necessarily um, illicit. So it was inappropriate during a heavenly vision of the glories of heaven to just turn around to an angel appearing as a guy and to bow down to him. So that's just what I have to have to say. So what do you say to those who say that St. Thomas More endorsed a sort of socialism and utopia? I haven't read it, so I don't know. Yeah, I think this sort of retroactive reading into previous um, thinkers, especially with St. Thomas More, who's just been groundbreaking on, on these topics. I think it's a bit inappropriate. And you should look to earlier uh, formative influences rather than ladders ones, rather than looking to ladder traditions to categorize them in is what I meant. Okay, do you have any thoughts on Oriental Orthodoxy? I've only heard the topic addressed from an Eastern Orthodox view. My thoughts on Oriental Orthodoxy. Um, I think their Christology, I think when it comes to their Christology, their Christology isn't actually heretical. I think just as the, uh, the Orientals, at least in the modern, in the modern day, I just think it's been misunderstanding. I, I I do hold to that thesis, but I I mean I would just have a lot of the same uh, critiques that I would have against the East. I think it'd basically be the same. So I think it'd be superfluous. When I speak of the Orthodox. I think I would include under that. Okay, I'm going to take a quick like two minute break, and then I'll come right back to you guys. You can keep asking questions in the chat. I'm just going to grab some water.
Okay, I'm back. Okay. Let me go back up. The thoughts on bullfighting based in tradition pilled. Uh, yeah, that's that is a bit of a, a difficult one because I don't know. I don't know. I'm not really an expert in animal ethics. That'd definitely be a bit of a difficult one. I guess a clarification that could help me is when Catholics in Eastern Orthodox say we follow tradition, what is tradition? Um, <laughs> yeah, so I think this comes down to, like I said, this baby right here. The, the um, why can't I think of words today? The Evolution of Catholic Dogma. Uh, by St. John Henry Newman. Uh, that's a really important primer on what Roman Catholics mean by tradition. And uh, he makes some statements about uh, the East in his essay on the development of doctrine that are really helpful, is um, understanding that when it comes to the tradition, the tradition isn't something which is dead. And in the past, we're not um, <clears throat> traditionalists or really primitivists. We don't look to earlier is better necessarily. But um, really, the tradition is the contemplation of the church in the apostolic deposit, which is, um, it's really the effect that the word of God has on the subject that is the church. That's how I would define tradition. And then that is objectively brought, in, brought forth in an objective manner uh, by the magisterium in defining um, defining these certain distinctions that are inchoate in the inchoate in the apostolic deposit. Would you agree that there are some hyperbole in writers on Mary, which has to be qualified by more accurate theology? Yes. Yes. Is as controversial as this might be. And again, I'm just a, a layman with a camera and um, a Twitter. That's all I am. But uh, humbly, very humbly, to the to the doctor that is doctor of the church that is uh, Saint Alphonsus Liguori. I think there definitely is some hyperbole going on that could be misunderstood. I don't think Liguori and was speaking in a wrong sense. I just think that uh, it could be mis easily misunderstood, and that <clears throat> that it can definitely be taken overboard. Okay. So what are your thoughts upon Stoicism and his values based on the cardinal virtues for Christians? Basically, the cardinal virtues for Christians. Yes, actually, the if you read in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it um, and then the consensus of doctors going even back all the way to pre-Christian authors, such as Philo and his uh, interpretation of Genesis, he'll go over it, that um, the cardinal virtues are completely... Um, essential, I, I will say essential to Christian morality, because even in reading Paul, I think it's very hard to separate Paul from uh, Greco-Roman ethics. And I think he's putting forth a certain um, spin on Greco-Roman ethics that gets systematized in later theologians.
Okay, have you read anything from the Islamic tradition regarding divine simplicity? I am woefully underread on the Islamic tradition. So I can defend the Catholic faith against Islamic arguments, but I I can give almost no statements on what Muslims believe. I wouldn't want a Muslim who is severely uninformed on the Catholic tradition, which there are some out there, unfortunately, to make statements about Catholicism. And I, I would want to give the same uh, charity to them. So, sorry. How many points do the deer up on the wall have behind you? Uh, one has nine, the other has eight. Why don't you have a beard, you silly Latin? Because beards, I, I'm not a, I'm not a beard fan, ma'am. I'm a Latin, so I just like the clean shaved look. I always have. <clears throat> so. Good Catholic novels, you know, Reed. Yeah, I'm not a fiction guy. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm being a bit lame with a lot of these answers that I don't know. But um, I, ho I hope you at least appreciate my honesty. But um, good Catholic novels. Uh, a really good Catholic novel is the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I'll just leave that to you. <laughs> it's kind of funny, even in the, um, I, I think Augustine relates this, but in the early church, when they started banning um, Christians from using uh, pagan books in, in their schools, in little schools that they had, they um, replaced it with a metric version of, a sort of epic version of of um the book of judges and right when that law was lifted they kind of just threw away the metric version of judges and went back to to homer because i mean good literature is good literature man AJ asked, I was always confused about this issue. If there are people in heaven, will they also be judged on judgment day when Christ returns? Yes. There is the, um, so there's a distinction made between the particular and the general judgment. So the particular judgment happens right when you die, but the general judgment happens at the resurrection when uh, souls are united to bodies. And what do we mean by the resurrection of the dead in this situation? So, um, the resurrection of the dead is understood in that um, it would be the reinfleshing of the souls which are um, in the presence of God participating in the beatific vision. <clears throat> yeah, and then when it comes to, I mean, I, I'm not a fiction guy in that. Compared to the people I know, I'm not a fiction guy, but compared to the average average American, I mean, I've read a lot of the classics when it comes to the the actual great books that you're gonna want to you're gonna want to read when it comes to fiction. I've I've tried to make that a um, a central part of of my of my uh, educational journey because it is really important. Because I, I've been thinking of of making a full video on this, but when you think about <clears throat> 
what fiction is and what stories are. Stories are really just a certain participation in the story, which is the gospel. So just in the same way that um, philosophy prepared the Gentiles to receive Christ, so also did their stories. Because Christ is really the archetypal um, hero in, in the in, in the genre of a hero story. Christ is the Christ is the new Odysseus, if you want to put it at, put it that way. Um, so I, I think that's very important to uh, being able to to contemplate the mystery of Christ in a in a different way and in a greater depth is contemplating him through stories. Another one with a very good. Uh, very good um, Christian sort of typology is Beowulf. Because, I mean, you have the resurrection of the dead there. You have, yeah. So Beowulf is another great one. But I haven't read Beowulf in, in a few years. But it's so sad because, I mean, I wish I had all of this. Uh, at, at my college, I mean, I read a great deal of, of classical fiction, but nothing compared to what your average university student would get 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And I feel really left out, you know. I wish that I was forced to read all this stuff and not just read sucky books. Oh, yeah. So Shia, Alex says, read Shakespeare. Yes, I took a whole class in undergrad on Shakespeare. And we read, I want to say, around 10 to 15 of his, of his, um, of his plays. And Shakespeare is definitely a favorite. He's definitely a favorite. I actually had to write a paper on, like an actual like academic paper on Shakespeare. So that was really fun to get into the world of like Shakespeare theory and, and stuff like that. I didn't even know it existed that you had Shakespeare scholars writing like actual in academic journals just dedicated to Shakespeare studies. I didn't know that existed. So armed with reason, what is your main argument against Sola Scriptura? Um, so first we have to define Sola Scriptura. So, I mean, I don't like being an apologist against the Protestants, but I guess I'll give a short little uh, summary if that helps you guys out, since this is a Q&A. So I can't deflect all the hard questions. I have to answer some of them. So first, what is Sola Scriptura? So Sola Scriptura is that scripture alone is the sole rule of faith. It is the norming norm, which norms all other norms and is normed by no norms, as the, <laughs> as the reformed scholastics would put it. So it is the judge of all other uh, theologians and councils and uh, popes in matters of controversy. But where you get into some issues is that this would differ from the Catholic sense, because I think we can say in a certain sense that scripture is the, uh, is the judge in all controversies. But, but when it comes to the, the magisterium, okay, I kind of dug myself into a hole here. I've, I'm sorry bit tired so i'm um, speaking in bad categories but when it comes to the magisterium um that is another 
infallible source, but not in the same manner that scripture is infallible, is, is the sole infallible source in, in after a material sense. But the magisterium is after a derivative sense in that um, in its contemplation of scripture, it is able to judge in that it judges and gives form to matter uh, what is spoken of in the scriptures. So it's a lot more uh, of a complicated relationship between the Protestant and the Catholic view. So when it comes to uh, the nature of a judge, the nature of a judge cannot be taken upon scripture alone. And that's my fundamental contention is, for example, you're going to say that scripture judges, uh, let's say the West Westminster Confession. Well, let's go to uh, Richard Hooker in his arguments with Thomas Cartwright, the, uh, the Puritan. And Richard Hooker is, a, uh, is an Anglican, if you're not familiar with him. Those who disagree on the interpretation of scripture so um, what, what Richard Hooker says they should do is Richard Hooker says that we need some sort of mediating um, judge to, under, to uh, be able to judge the interpretation of scripture. And I, I think it's, it's a bit funny because scripture, I, I think, would play more of the role of a material um, source which uh, from it is derived a instrument of judgment that is the magisterium to apply scripture. And I think that follows after the Old Testament pattern. So um, yeah, that was, that, that, that might've made no coherent sense. Those are just some, uh, some of my reflections right there. So sorry about that. That I wish I could just restart that whole answer. <laughs> But that's a, I mean, that's just a huge question to answer in a Q&A. I'm sorry. Armed with reason. Thoughts on Bonaventure. He used to be the profile picture of this channel like five months ago. Yes, Bonaventura. Bonaventura is a very good theologian. And I think what's most helpful about him is... Bonaventura is a mystic par excellence. And while Thomas is also a mystic, let's not, let's not misunderstand that. Bonaventura mixes his mysticism in with a lot of his writings. So I think he's very helpful in that aspect. And then he also comes from a bit of a different metaphysical perspective than St. Thomas in that he is much more of a strict Augustinian. So I think that's helpful to uh, provide a bit of a foil to St. Thomas. Um, yeah, so that's all I'm going to say about that. So have you read The Voyage of Thumbdale? It's a mixing between Dante and Beowulf, a Catholic Viking voyage in hell and paradise, 11th century. It, it sounds like an interesting one. I think we, we're, we're sleeping on um, a, lot of, a lot of the classic stories that are synthesized with Catholic thought. So, I mean, Beowulf is basically that. I'm sure it was a pre-existing story with pagan origins that were taken up by Christians.
So have you read Lytton's on the divinity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Highly recommended. If not, I have not. When it comes to the best Anglican work on the Trinity, I think it's uh, Francis J. Hall. Even Paul agrees. Paul, basically the only Protestant he recommends is is uh, is Hall. If a pope, cough, cough, Pius XIII, addressed the faithful from the balcony of St. Peter's and said that it didn't matter if he were Christ, Antichrist, man or God, is he a heretic? Is he still pope? <laughs> um, well, he would definitely be a material heretic. I That show, um, it's a very complicated one, and I think it, it gave me a lot to think about. It definitely gave me a lot to think about. Um, it has some great themes in in contemplating um, the Christian life, but there's a lot of slag to, to 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 get out of the way in order to get to those great themes of contemplation. But he would definitely be a material heretic, and uh, to be a to be the way in which canon law talks about a heretic being ipso facto deposed from the papacy. He would have to be uh, judged as a heretic, and no see judges the apostolic see. So, as Robert Bellarmine talks about, he would kind of need to. No, actually, it's not under canon law that he ipso facto ceases to be pope. That's just the opinion of some. Uh, sorry, I misspoke. So he would kind of need to put himself under the judgment of an ecumenical council or cardinals or whoever in order to judge him. It'd be a really weird situation. How do you find a traditional wife? I need advice. Uh, I don't know how I did it, boys, so don't ask me for advice. <laughs> I kind of just, I don't know. It just happened to me. Grace of God edits my videos. Absolute Chad wears a veil to, to mass. Absolutely based. I have no idea how I did it. Okay. Let me know if you have any more questions in the chat. Sorry, I kind of ran out this, ran out of steam this last like 30 minutes. I feel like my answers were completely incoherent. I'm so sorry. I feel like my brain is just not working. I don't know, but also sometimes it's really weird when you do things like this. Is I'll think that my brain is being incoherent and that I'm saying stuff that doesn't make sense. And then I'll listen to the recording because occasionally I'll listen to a recording of, of some of my stuff. And then it just sounds just fine. Just fine. It doesn't sound incoherent at all. It, it, everything I said made sense. So maybe. Should all ministers of the church live a life of poverty? That's a difficult question. <laughs> That's very Because then you, you have to, what do you mean by should? Because if it's a if it's in the sense of is that the uh, the ideal situation? Well, yes, it's the ideal situation. And then also, what do you mean by life of poverty? Because life of poverty could be like in the Franciscan sense, like you don't own shoes. Yeah, 
You said you dislike Zwingli. What are the highlights of your reasoning? Why? With Zwingli, he always smacks as just an innovator who just wants to innovate just because. Like, no singing in churches. Like, come on, dude. Come on. No singing in church. Do the papists do it. Come on, dude. Like, that is such a screwed up reading of the regulative principle. I can't, I can't even, I can't even take you serious if you're just like no singing in church. Come on, dude. But yeah, um, I, that's a really weird, like a lot of people, this is just going to be my rant sesh for, for a minute because I was annoyed by this when I was reformed. A lot of the people that you'll get in the modern sense that call themselves reformed just mean that they watch John Piper and hold to a certain view of God's sovereignty. But that is not what it means to be reformed. Oh my gosh, it is not what it means. There's a cert, there's a whole liturgical heritage that comes with that. And in its most proper sense, um, being reformed means a certain view when it comes to church music. So no hymns. Um, ideally, um, in a lot of a lot of them, it came to a certain uh, interpretation of uh, instruments and in churches. So your your pseudo Bethel rock band reformed bands, like it's just it's it's a complete meme because Calvin would probably be burning you, uh, and Zwingli would give you your third baptism for doing that. Okay. Oh, thank you, Anselm and Anselm and just discovered you the other day. Excellent content. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, I really try. I really do try. So Shia Alex, any thoughts on existing printings of the Summa? Any criticisms, ideas for improvement, or etc.? Um, I think the where is it? Where did my well behind me right there? That I think that one right there, that's the volume of the commentary and the sentences. Then over to there, that's my summa. And then past that's just, uh, I think, commentary on the metaphysics, uh, Job, uh, Galatians, and Ephesians, and then uh, Romans, and a, a few other miscellaneous uh, books that I have. But um, the Omnia Opera of uh, the Aquinas Institute. That is a very good choice for the for the Summa. It has a Latin English side by side. So if you're a Latinist or you're trying to learn Latin and trying to, well, not necessarily trying to learn Latin, but trying to learn scholastic Latin from previously known general Latin, that's it's very helpful. Uh, it's been very helpful to me. And also, I mean, there's some, it, it's just generally appropriate to have the Latin next to you because Thomas sometimes, sometimes translators aren't the, a lot of times translators aren't good theologians. So when they translate concepts into English, you get the wrong idea. Um, so it's very helpful to, to have the Latin English side by side. And then ideas for improvement, um, especially with the Summa, please, if you're listening to this, if, you, if you're listening to this, uh, anybody from Aquinas Institute, I'm sure you're not. <laughs> I'm sure you guys aren't listening to, to my Q&A stream at an hour and 40 minutes in. But please just translate the in the Leonine edition, the little 
commentary from Kajitin. Please just translate that for us. It wouldn't take that much extra work. It maybe add like 10% labor, 20% labor to, to the translator who's translating it. Please, please, please. Or like have a supplemental volume or something. I don't care, but please add Kajitin to it. That's the most helpful thing you can do is to add Kajitin's commentary on the Summa with the printing of the Summa. Come on, there's a reason. There's a reason the Leo 9 edition has it because you it, it's very important and it's not translated into English and it's very hard Latin that none of us will be able to understand even if we're good at Latin. Okay, that's just my my brief rant. Matthew Taylor, chances percentage-wise that Holy Father Michael is a true Bishop of Rome. 0.1%. There's a very remote chance. Okay, Owen, can you explain what it means to be a bishop of the diocese prior to being consecrated to the order of bishop? Yeah, so this comes into the distinction between the ministry and the um, and the sacramental order. So um, those two can be distinguished. Um, when it comes to the sacramental order, that means the sacramental powers that come along with being a bishop. But before that, you're elected to a certain... Um, so bishop of the diocese is better to speak of the ordinary of the diocese. Actually, some dioceses such as um, the ordinariate in America, and I think also in um, in Australia, and then maybe in Great Britain, was led by a priest, not by a bishop. So he was the ordinary of the diocese. He wore a mitre and everything like that. He just needed another another uh, bishop to to do his uh, to do his consecrations. So those two can be separated, the administration, the administrative duties, and then also the, the sacramental duties. Okay. Is, is it true that early popes and priests had wives? Uh, I'm not sure. It's just something I've heard a lot. Yes. Yes. For almost a millennium, there was examples in the Latin West. Um, and I mean, a lot of these are local. Um, it just goes area to area that it changes in the East priests still have wives to this day. So it's, but I mean, I, that, I don't think that's necessarily a killer for Catholicism either. I personally um, am much more favorable to the view of a restricted um, acceptance of married priests because it's, it's a, it, it's not a dogma. Um, it's not a doctrine of the church. It's a practical matter. And I think that prudentially um, it's getting into a, a bit of a realm where it's starting to cause more harm than it is good. And I'm not talking about the, any of the pedophile scandals or anything. I'm purely talking about, um, I'm purely talking about the fact that you're having like one priest serve like 10,000 faithful in Canada. Yeah. It's when you have a non-Christianized society uh, you're having a lot less people who are celibate. So, I mean, that might, for that, this is purely talking about prudential issues. So this is a very loose argument because, um, yeah, that's all I'll say about it. So aren't some Thomists just as double predestinarian as Calvinists? Uh, it just depends on which Calvinists you're talking about. Because if you're talking about double predestination in infralapsarian sense, um, 
then yeah, I, I have no problem. I think the reformed and the Thomas pretty much agree, but I think uh, where you have to make the distinction is that like five to 10% of, of the reform that were super lapsarians. I don't think that's an acceptable view because in Thomas's view, and then in the other reform view, while the cause of reprobation is not sin, it's a necessary condition for reprobation. When you're going to get a huge bookshelf like the rest of theology YouTubers, it really ups your credibility. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not old. No, I don't mean that deridingly, but a lot of, most of my books are digital. The only really things I have in print are those things that aren't on Lagos or I can't find them on PDF. And then also my Corpus Domesticum. Okay. So I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna go guys. We've been going for a long time should get back to the wife. So thank you guys um, again. So let's try to push 700. Let's have another 100 week because last week was 100. We've already started out in the first day of this week up to 633, something 634, something around there. So we're already off to a great start. So it looks like we'll hit 100 for a third week in a row. So make sure you you're sharing my stuff with uh with your friends because word of mouth is really how i'm gonna how i'm gonna grow the best so um if you if people run into problems and i have resources on it or um or if you just drop a mention that that's really helpful and interpersonal dialogue is really helpful when it comes to being able to answer these questions and to be able to grow the channel and to continue to uh to conquer youtube because we will conquer together love you guys all appreciate all of you and god bless